Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2. We did one last week. Uh, two's a bit longer, and it's starting to hit the conundrum of Daniel, where I really do want to keep us moving through, which means that I'm probably not going to cover everything you would like me to cover. In fact, I'm not even going to read the whole chapter, most of it. But, but some of this, these questions that I, I hope you have, and maybe you have and want to talk about, we'll come back and talk about later chapters, because there is a, a bit of a repetition. So as we're continuing to focus on just one or two themes at a night, if you feel like there's something you missed and wished I covered it, you just, we'll have some Q&A sessions. And we'll, 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 Lord willing, we'll get through it or get to it. Well, what's your, what's your worst nightmare? Have you ever had a really bad nightmare? Something that really got you up at night? Uh, I've had a couple recently. I've had a dream where I've seen Sammy walking across the parking lot, through the grass, down the little ditch, up into Daretown Road, right where the curve is, and the dream stops right as a car comes zooming around. I've had that dream several times, and um, this, the second time I, I woke up, <gasps> and Elizabeth said, "What? What? What? what, what you know, I'm okay. I'm okay." I went back to sleep. Your dreams reveal a lot about you. They reveal that two-sided coin of what you love and what you fear. But what would you do if God sent you a mysterious dream that called into question all that you held dear? This is what you see in God's word tonight. Let's look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and sleep left him. Let's pray. Father, right now we get to have a, an experience of someone else's nightmare, a dream that you sent him to get his attention to reveal to him and to us that you are king. And so would you work in us now through your word. Give us a big picture of who you are as the great God. We pray that we would not go out unchanged or with hearts that are hard, having heard your word tonight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The king receives a dream in this chapter, and he wasn't the same after he woke up. In fact, he's wide awake, he's shook to the core, and he, he comes and he calls for all of his wise men. And he couldn't sleep anymore that night. Now you see the steps what he went through, and that might sound a bit strange to us, that the most powerful man in the world at that time could be shook up simply by a mysterious dream. But there's at least two reasons for this. First of all, the, the dream is, is very personal in a way that is mysterious and yet ominous. And second, the ancients believed that kings would receive something called message dreams. These would be visions from the gods in times of crises. And when they came, they must be explained. The king must stop at nothing to understand the meaning. And in fact, it doesn't matter if the meaning was terrible. It was worse to be in the dark than to know the meaning of this ominous dream. You can think about Pharaoh. Right, with Pharaoh's dream about the cows and the grain and, and, and how, how disturbed he was. It, was. it was a message dream. 
And, and Babylonian wise men had rules and methods for understanding these types of dreams. And that they had cer- certain ciphers and symbols and rubrics. And so like if a certain animal showed up in the dream and it did X, then it meant this thing. Or if there was some kind of item and it broke, this, it meant something else. It foretold something. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar sends for his wise men. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, which was just another name for a class of wise men, be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Just a note here before we go on. The text from verse 4 onwards is in Aramaic, which was the court and trade language of the time, just like Latin was Greek and then Latin and perhaps English today. Uh, We're not quite sure why that is the case. It it might be because this is in the the place of Babylon and it's even telling the Jews who would be familiar with both languages that this is just reinforcing the fact that Daniel's in exile. For us, it very nicely sets off this next section, chapter 2 to chapter 7. It kind of gives you an outline of the book by changing the language. But the, the wise men go on. The Chaldeans say to the king in Aramaic, that's where it starts, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let this king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. See, Nebuchadnezzar has a very curious way of approaching the problem-solving of this dream. Right? He calls in his wise men, I had a dream, a great, O king, tell us the interpretation, and, and we will let you know. No, you tell me the meaning and the dream, or I'll kill you. Why did he do that? There could be a couple reasons. It could be that he was capricious. He is a man with absolute power and doesn't mind just using it however he wants. There there may be some hints here from the text that he's cautious. He wants to make sure that he he knows that he's getting the exact interpretation. Because he knows that these men are clever and maybe they would just make something up when they didn't know it. It's kind of like that joke about calling a fortune teller, right? And then the hotline, fortune hotline, and say, hi, I'm a fortune teller, how am I help you? And you say, well, you're the fortune teller, you tell me. Or that, that kind of thing. If you're so smart, you, know, you should know why I'm calling you without me having to tell you. You could make the argument that, at least for these first, some of these chapters, Nebuchadnezzar is really the main character. And here this exchange gives you some insight into his personality. He's... He's scared. You can see he is scared by this dream. 
And yet you can see all of his other human characteristics. He is shrewd, he is imperious, he is callous, he is completely immune from the fault of his execution order. He can just wipe out a dozen or more of these wise men, high standing, and it doesn't matter. But what you see here is that the Babylonian wisdom fails to make any sense of this dream. In fact, they are forced to admit their failure. Well, we can't do that. Only the gods can do that. And perhaps here Nebuchadnezzar isn't being completely unreasonable because after all, they, have, they claim to have divine insight. They claim to have a connection with the gods and yet they can't tell him the dream that came from the gods. And the wisdom doesn't deliver when it matters the most. Let's just stop here and apply this for a second. Human wisdom is like the Chaldean wisdom. Uh, it might be cunning, it might be creative, it might be resourceful, it might be clever, but it doesn't give back to the real source. It can't, it can't connect us to God. It can't give us any real meaning in life. It's, it's helpful, but it's limited. Think about all the things that we would classify as wisdom today, the people that we would run to, the gurus, whether it's, whether it's um, Apple and its technology, whether it's science and the scientists that we look to, whether it's health, whether it's Dr. Oz, or Oprah, people that we would think wise and have insight into lives. We can learn a lot of things from them, the wisdom of the Chaldeans, perhaps. It's one of the things that as I grew out of the church and realized that there are a lot of smart and clever and intelligent people who aren't believers, you kind of wrestle with that. Well, I mean, you, you see here the, the Chaldeans just not being able to do anything. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, there, there are a lot of people who can tell you how to live life well, but they can't tell us why it matters that we should live life well. Why it matters that you're that way. Uh, I had the privilege of taking a combat lifesaver course back when I was young, probably late teens, early 20s as a soldier. It was a longer course back. I think it's actually fairly long. It's three to four days. It's pretty comprehensive. It's, you're not a medic, but you're learning how to do kind of step below those types of things. And so we were covering fairly heavy stuff, right? How to treat serious combat wounds when sometimes people wouldn't survive. And we had an excellent teacher. Um, he, was a spe- he was a prior special forces medic, so he knew his stuff. He was fairly old for the army. He was getting ready to retire. He was either sergeant first class or master sergeant. And the first night we were there, he said, you know, this is, this is really important stuff that we're talking about here. And I, I want you to think about, as we're dealing, about, dealing with wounds that, that could take someone's life, I want you to think about what you're going to do with your life. And so he's, he handed us out an index card and he said, what I would like you to do is write down what you would, right now, if you were to die in the future, what you would want on your, your gravestone. And, and, and give yourself, you know, say how long you're going to live. So you can live as long as you reasonably and then and write what you would like on your gravestone. So, so we went back to our barracks that night and we thought about it and wrote it down. I think mine was something simple and not very profound, you know, from 1981 to 2071, 80 years, and he loved his God, his, his wife, his, his family, even though I wasn't married at the time. Um, and so we brought them back in the next day, and then that night he read them. And as, as we were finishing the last day, he said, yeah, I'm just really honored to be able to, to read all of your cards and, and how you would you know, want to be remembered. And he says, but I want you to remember this. 
as, as much the things that you put on are important, there's one thing that matters most. And that is the hyphen. It's you know, from when you were living now to when you die. And he says, it's that time in the middle that, that matters the most. Make it count. Well, that's pretty profound. Um, there's a lot of wisdom in that. We, we want to live our life well, but it, it doesn't answer the deeper question still. Why? If the world is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If, if the hyphen is all there is, then the hyphen really doesn't matter that much. It's whatever you make of it. You, I don't even need to quote Isaiah for that. You can quote Nietzsche. Right? Life is meaningless. When you... you and you see that type of thinking, although producing some, some wonderful and, and, and courageous and brave people, at the same place with this Chaldeans, where they're, they're not able to get to the source. And ultimately, they say, well, only God can answer that, or, or maybe we don't know chance answers that, whatever. But there's no ultimate answer. And so think about that. As, we, as, we, as you evaluate current wisdom and techniques, that can be very helpful, they can help you live wisely. Don't be caught up in this, well, we just, you know, we just live well and then we're gone. It's far deeper than that. And you see this with, with God's wisdom. Verse 12. Uh, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared it to Arioch, the king's captain. Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. This is very brave of Daniel, being that at this time the Lord has not even revealed it to him. But then it says that, that Daniel seeks the Lord and the Lord makes it known. And then he goes in and he sees the king. Verse 25. Then Ariot brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Daniel removes all posturing, gives clear, clear credit to the Lord, as even Nebuchadnezzar will at the end. It ultimately is wisdom that comes from God. So what does this dream mean? I'm going to read the first part, and I want you to engage your imaginations as I slowly read a description of which you're probably very familiar. But I want you to visualize this statue, because this is 
This is a vision. Right? It's, it's not a didactic discourse where someone is building an argument. It's, a, it's an image that is supposed to strike you as you're reading it. It has a force beyond just the, the point-by-point interpretation. This was the dream that woke Nebuchadnezzar up at the start. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, how do you interpret this dream? We'll, we'll read Daniel's interpretation. But I will say, before we get to this, there's, it's not easy. It's not easy for a couple reasons. There's going to be overlaps with other parts of the books. Chapter 7, which is really the, the main focus of the book. There's the vision of the four beasts. There's other parts of the, of the book which overlap. They will see that there's quite a bit of disagreement between believing Christians just just Google image of Daniel 2, and there's all these pictures of the four or five segments as they decide to put them, and, and then the interpretations, especially for four and five, are very, very different. So, so how do you interpret this? I, I want to start off by saying there's two errors that you can make with this dream. Um, the first is to treat it just as a roadmap uh, from which you can determine kind of the exact time when, when Jesus will come back or some other event. And... Uh, not all, but some dispensationalist brothers might fall into this idea. There's, there's a commentator Carrie, that's called Daniel the Key to Prophetic Interpretation. Right? So if you, if you understand Daniel, you understand everything else, which in itself is not necessarily bad, but you, you can see how you might get really drawn into the details so much, looking for the meaning of the toes or this kingdom or that kingdom, that you kind of miss the impact of what it was to Nebuchadnezzar. The second is the exact opposite, where you focus so much on the details and you say, it's, it's just so hard, there's so many Christians that disagree and can't come to any kind of conclusion that they just, they don't really matter and, and we can't really learn anything from them. And there's a couple more reformedish commentators that, that might take that view that they're so agnostic. I think that's actually wrong too. Not so much this time, but maybe later we'll, we'll say, well, is there anything we can learn from this statue about the future and, and how does that work? So let's, let's look at the, the basics of the dream, and we'll start by reading the interpretation, starting at verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, the, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. 
And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But there shall be the firmness of iron, shall, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it was broken, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Let's spend a little bit of time just looking at this, this dream. Notice that Daniel spends most of his time on the first and fourth kingdom. He spends a lot of time on King Nebuchadnezzar. He is, in some ways, the guy. God has given him an incredible amount of power and authority over every sphere of earth. And so he is that head of gold. Next, there's two more kingdoms quickly passed over, with silver and bronze. And then there's this fourth kingdom, iron, which is intermixed with clay. It is at once both horrible and fragile. It, it will make war and destroy, and yet it seems to have this Achilles heel, or we could just not mix metaphors and say it has feet of clay, because that's where we get it from, right? And, and iron and clay cannot work together. There's this, this idiom, it talks about um, they, they will mix with one another in marriage, and really what it's talking about here, but it will fail. It's, it's basically that it will not be able to stay together. This, this kingdom will be a failed marriage, whether it's a literal failed marriage or, or uh, failing to, to put parts of the world together. You can see that today in the philosophies of the world, right? We say that abortion is a woman's choice, but it's a terrible thing if you decide that you're going to abort only girls. There's these things that they, don't, they, can't, they can't fit together. And you see that as, as humans try to rule apart from God, it's impossible for it to stand. And, and this iron, is, this kingdom, is, is particularly different than the others because, on the one hand, it's, it's talked about as a fourth kingdom, and yet there seems to be two parts. There are the legs, which are of iron, and yet its feet are partly of iron and clay. So is it, is it one king? Is it two? Is it one A and one B? How does that work? Those are some questions that anyone who's going to interpret it will have to answer later on. And then there's the stone. It's, it's cut out by a hand that's not human, so it's supernatural. It destroys the other kingdoms and it grows to supplant them. And we'll think of stone as being particularly impressive for building materials now, but stone was particularly effective back then for, for walls or foundations. And the fact that this stone was built into a mountain, became a mountain, was particularly impressive as a symbol of strength, especially for Babylonian people who lived on a plain. And so they admired mountains. And so the, the, the interpretation is pretty simple, isn't it? The, the kingdom of God, this divine stone, is going to smash 
the seemingly all-powerful rulers of this world is God will set up his kingdom, which will eclipse everything. That's it. It's, a, it's very simple. We need to hold on to that and not lose it. But there's some, that's the big picture, but then, well, what can we learn? Talk just a little bit here about, is there something that we can learn about the future? We'll just kind of tease us a little bit now, and we'll go more into this in Daniel 7. Um, this, the, who are these kingdoms? The general consensus in the evangelical community is that the first one stands for Babylon, very simple. The second one is for the next empire, which is Media and Persia. The third one would be Alexander the Great in his, his Grecian expansion. And then the fourth one, probably Rome. And this is where if you get to the charts of Daniel and you start Googling them, you will see a whole bunch of different answers. Well, let's look at, first of all, if you looked at someone who maybe had a dispensational uh, persuasion, what would they say about this fourth kingdom? What might that be? Well, they would say that there's actually a break between the kingdom of bronze and the kingdom of iron, and that the Rome does not fit that kingdom clearly enough. There's ten toes in the statue, and those ten toes line up with the ten horns, the ten beasts, and so we're looking for um, a king that will come back, ten kings that will come back with the beast uh, before the statue is completely destroyed, and at that point um, there will be the rapture and, and and Christ will come back. How I'll, I'll tell you for now how I understand it. Maybe we can flesh it out a little bit later in chapter 7. I do believe that Rome starts as an initial fulfillment of that final kingdom. And some dispensationalists would say, yeah, that's the legs of iron. There's a divided kingdom, that's later. Um, but I would agree with those people who say that it's not completely fulfilled especially when you get to chapter 7 and there is this beast that it does seem to be more towards the end of time and there is some overlap between the fourth beast and this fourth kingdom. And yet, I believe also the Lord has, he's, he's, he's vaguely given us some roadmaps to, to see how he is foretelling history in a way that we can look back and see how he is kind of calling history going through down the ages but someone from Daniel's time would not be able to say, oh, well, Alexander's going to be coming in 50 years, right? So what can you see about the fourth kingdom that is a lot like Rome? Well, clearly it's devouring in its nature, conquering all the world in a way that's unlike anything before it. But even more importantly, there is the coming of Jesus and persecution of God's people in Rome. And out of those three, the one that convinces me the most that Rome is at least the beginning of this fourth beast that comes and tramples with horror is because Jesus comes during that time. And it talks about the stone here being the kingdom of God. When does the king kingdom come? When the king comes. Now, would you say, would you say the, the kingdom is, is completely here? Well, no, it's not completely here. But Jesus' first words were, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he talks about, just like the stone kind of growing and increasing, he talks about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, very, very small. When it's planted, it grows and it becomes the largest plant in the garden where the, where the birds of the air find shade. By the way, that's a reference to Daniel. God talks of Nebuchadnezzar that way in his rule later on. And so along those lines, New Testament uh, teachers have said... 
The stone has come with Jesus. The kingdom has come when the Messiah has come. And this is the last days, the latter days that Daniel is talking about here. They talk about, the apostles talk about so many times, the last days already being here. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so the king has come. There's an initial fulfillment of of Rome as the fourth uh, kingdom, but yet it is still to come. We'll be talking about that more, but that's that's just a little bit about how uh, I think we can understand the, the kingdoms working its way through there. But when you understand a vision, it's not just about what it means or what the symbols stand for, but it's also the impact that it has on you. Armed with the big picture view, just put aside what, what the heads and, and the, the chest and the legs might have meant, with the big picture view, how is this supposed to affect you? Start with Nebuchadnezzar. How would this have affected Nebuchadnezzar? What was it that made him sit up with a start in the middle of the night? He sees this mysterious image and he gets completely demolished by a rock. And I think there, he, he's a smart guy and I think there's, a, there's good inference to believe that even before Daniel gave him the interpretation, he had an idea that somehow this dream was talking about his kingdom. His kingdom, his dominion, the, the, he was the one through his, his might and his shrewdness and his intellect and his military cunning that he raised the Babylon Empire to all of its glory, its architectural glory, its military glory, its cultural glory. There were so many ways that this was the pinnacle of ancient civilization at that time. And he sees this very depressing image. Right? It's, a, it's a depressing statue that degrades. It, it gets, goes from expensive to cheaper and cheaper materials. At the same time, it's getting harder, maybe symbolizing that it's more brutal. It's, and yet, when you get to the bottom, the whole thing is completely unstable, ready to fall apart. The, 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 the statue that his beloved Babylon is the top of is tottering on this mixture of clay and iron. And then he sees that everything is there is smashed and blown away into the dust. And when Daniel explains the dream, it doesn't get any better. Yes, your king, your, your kingdom is the height of human achievement. But it will not last. You will be followed by inferior kingdoms in many ways, worse in their culture and their glory. And they too will all be swept away. This dream is a wake-up call. It's a decision for how to view reality that this current world is not the final order. So what kingdom are you following? This dream is really a snapshot of two kingdoms, isn't it? It's the kingdom of God and the kingdoms uh, ruled by men. And the first option that you have is, is the one of Nebuchadnezzar, to choose the world powers of the day. And maybe, even if you're like Nebuchadnezzar, have the option to choose your own, create your own kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is in many ways the perfect window into the human heart apart from the grace of God. Think about it. He had the ability to command whatever he desired. If he didn't like the way you looked, off with your head. No one could say anything to him. He's, he's kind of like a, a shrewd toddler who was grown up, right? Can, are you glad that toddlers don't have uh, absolute power with their whims and their wishes? He, he's not even constrained by the laws of Medes and Persians as the next uh, Darius will be. And he's portrayed as the head of gold. He's kind of symbolizing 
all of humanity there in that desire, that I am the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. But what about you? What about me? We are tempted. We, we have, there's calls out there to latch onto this world in a way that gives it that lasting significance. Maybe carve out our own little personal kingdoms. In some area, no matter how small, find a small glory to worship and to live for. The world wants to put you to sleep and dream the lie that these small glories are life. I use an illustration of, with fear and trembling because I, I do realize I talk about football a good bit in sermons. Um, but it is the beginning of the college football a kickoff. And you want to see a claim, a glory grab. You want to see a, gl- a glory grab watch or go to a large college football stadium where you have 100,000 people, literally a medium-sized town in a stadium, waiting for their heroes to come streaming out of a tunnel to the, the, the peasantry, the music, the sounds, an industry that each of the large teams generates maybe $100 million a year. And, and to just hear, whether, whether you think it's silly or whether you get into to hear the crowd and see how they get wrapped up in this spectacle, saying, this is glory, this is wonder, this is delight. What does Nebuchadnezzar's dream tell you? Wake up. Wake up. These little kingdoms are very temporary, and one day they will be smashed and all blown away. The question that came to my Life, as I was reading this passage and studying it, is what statues in your life need to be smashed? Are there any idols that have become a rival love to your Lord Jesus? Is there a forbidden pleasure that demands your all? Is there something good but temporary that soaks up your resources in a way that saps your love for Jesus? Is, is there something that unreasonably would put you into a cold sweat if it were threatened? Would give you a nightmare. Now, not necessarily do these all of these things that are good necessarily have to be destroyed. But is there something that needs to be dethroned in your life? Now, I was I was watching. I watched the opening of my alma mater, Penn State, and as the people were running out, and just someone who's watched those games all my life and attended some and attended the university, I could feel the tug of glory on my heart. I just could. Uh, I could feel it. And I could remind myself, being anchored in this image, there is a sort of glory here. It's real. But it's small. And it's fading. And what you see of the kingdom of God here is the second choice is by faith to believe that this kingdom has come in the life of Jesus. And although it seems sometimes so small to the glory and the glamour and the glitz of this world, We know that by faith he has risen and ascended and is coming back. And all other kingdoms, no matter how big, no matter how small, are living on borrowed time. That's the framework that we have to have. The truth of the gospel is when you build your life on the rock, then you are connected to that kingdom and you will never fail. Jesus is so bold as to use the symbol of the rock for his life. Don't believe he is directly referencing Daniel here, but he's talking about the only firm stability he has when he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came 
and the winds beat and blew on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. This week, how will you choose to invest your life? How will you live? Will you chase after a kingdom that's full of promise glory, but turns out to be standing on a shaky clay base, slivering on borrowed time? Or will you be awake, you be woken by this dream to the reality that Jesus rules over all, and that someday he will return and smash through that flimsy, fading glory that earth can only pretend to offer? Please pray with me. Father, there's much in Daniel that we will not know until it happens. And yet we can see you working in history, your promises we see through Babylon and Media and Persia and and, uh, Greece and then Rome. It, It shows us that you have already called history and that your word is true. And we see the life of our Lord Jesus and we know that he is the rock. And so would you help us to live now in the shadow of that ever-growing rock? Father, would you help us today to diagnose in our hearts idols that need to be dethroned, images that must be smashed? Would you give us the grace to be able to do battle with these things? Because we know, we've seen it. They're fading. They offer nothing compared to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. We pray this in Jesus' name.